From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Welcome back to Terra Informa. I'm Carter Gorzitsa. And I'm Amanda Rooney. And today we're joining you from the banks of the Red Deer River in Dinosaur Provincial Park. This summer, me and Amanda are working as interpreters here at Dino. That might be why you haven't heard much of us on Terra Informa, but hopefully we'll be bringing you some fun Cretaceous content, as well as some Anthropocene content <laughs> coming into this later 2019 summer. Yes, so last week, we, me and Carter were pretty jealous. The Terra Informa team produced a really awesome episode that was all about birds. We were able to gather some soundscapes for that. But we also gathered some interviews that we didn't get to use. So uh, we're going to try to use those this week. Before we get into all that, here are this week's headlines. Brought to you by the lovely Hannah Cunningham and her longtime friend, Elise. Can tackling climate change be synonymous with creating a better economy and creating new jobs? Supporters of the Green New Deal say yes. The Green New Deal was introduced in the United States by New York Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Massachusetts Senator Edward J. Markey as a congressional resolution to address global climate change. The Green New Deal calls for the ending of the United States' fossil fuel dependency in order to avoid the catastrophic consequences of runaway climate change. The Green New Deal also addresses that tackling climate change cannot simply rely on technical innovation, and that social issues such as economic inequality and racial injustices must also be dealt with. While the push for a Green New Deal started in the United States, the word is spreading around the globe and many Canadian communities and organizations are now beginning to make the same demands. There are over 150 town hall meetings being organized all across Canada to deliberate on what a Green New Deal could look like in Canada how it could mean the creation of new jobs, a more equitable economy, and a means of facing the many threats of climate change head-on. The first town hall was held right here in Edmonton, Alberta, on Saturday, May 18th. The event was organized by Climate Justice Edmonton and drew a crowd of 250 people into the Ritchie Community League Hall. According to a tweet posted by Climate Justice Edmonton, quote, so many people showed up to the Green New Deal town hall that they had to bust out every table in the building, end quote. In an opinion piece written by Climate Justice Edmonton organizer Clay Steele for the Edmonton Journal, the participants of the Edmonton Town Hall meeting were diverse in their backgrounds and motivations for attending, but everyone found a common interest in what a Green New Deal could offer for them. If you live in Edmonton, there is another event coming through our city being put on by The Leap, a group founded by Naomi Klein and Avi Lewis that focuses on pushing for system-wide change that addresses important and critical issues such as climate change, racism, and inequality. Climate Justice Edmonton and Shades of Colour are also acting as local organizing partners. The event is called a Green New Deal for All, and Edmonton is one of the stops on their cross-Canada tour. Topics for the evening include how the climate crisis is affecting our communities, who is responsible for this whole mess, and how a Green New Deal can build a better life for everyone. The event is taking place at the Robertson Wesley United Church in Edmonton, Alberta on June 19th at 6.30 p.m. Tickets range from $10 to $15. For more on the presenters and the accessibility of the event, visit our website at terrainforma.ca for the link to the Eventbrite page. So both of our newly elected and former provincial governments campaigned heavily around the imperative of pipelines and oil exports for the Alberta economy and well-being of people in this province. And like all political advertising, there were no obligations for these parties to practice truth in advertising. Award-winning journalist Andrew Nikiforak, 
a regular on the energy industry beat, writes about a few of the myths and some of the facts around the Alberta oil and gas industry and the Trans Mountain Pipeline. We've summarized a few of the more popular myths here. Myth. Canada relies on oil and gas industries for social and economic well-being. Fact. While the industry has grown, royalties have declined. Since 2000, the industry has grown 47%, but royalty payments have declined 69%. Royalty payments have fallen from around $12 billion in 2006 to $6 billion, signaling a proportional shrink in GDP. Myth. Canada loses 30 to 40 millions of dollars every day because we don't have enough export capacity to ship oil to the world market. The fact is, an industry would fail if they lost that much money every day. The largest oil sands companies all posted healthy profits in the first quarter of 2019. Myth. Turn off the tabs legislation will force the West Coast to support a new pipeline. The facts are British Columbia represent about 20% of the market for Alberta's refined petroleum products. Convincing industry to play along with cutting off one-fifth of the market doesn't hold up. Myth. Quote, foreign-funded, end quote, environmental activists are keeping Alberta oil landlocked and the economy crippled. The fact is, Alberta tar sands oil has always been landlocked and subject to volatile prices, at the same time requiring lots of energy to produce and creating lots of emissions in the process. Most environmental campaigns in Canada get some funding from U.S. counterparts or other U.S. environmental groups. Oil sands have been targeted because of their emissions and energy footprint, not because of some conspiracy against Alberta. Even with the efforts of environmental activists, oil sands production has increased 376% since 2000, so those, quote, foreign-funded, and quote, activists don't seem to be crippling anything. For more oil sands myths and facts, or to fact-check our facts yourselves, you can find a link on our website to the full article and get informed on some of the important information Albertans and all Canadians may be missing about a major resource sector. This Saturday, June 15th, the 10th annual Camrose Purple Martin Festival is taking place. This single-day event is full of activities and opportunities to learn all about Purple Martins and how to get them into your backyard. Purple martins are the largest of the North American swallows and can be found in eastern North America during the summer breeding months. According to a map on the Cornell Lab of Ornithology website, the most western range of their breeding habitat stretches into central Alberta, along with some of the small pockets of habitat on the west coast of the United States. These large swallows are cavity nesters, and populations that live east of the Rocky Mountains live almost exclusively in housing supplied by humans in the forms of martin houses that people put up on their properties. Western populations still nest in cavities like woodpecker holes in dead snags, making them very hard to spot. Purple martins are a popular songbird due to the male's glossy, deep blue colors. The aerial acrobatics they perform while catching insects and their tolerance of humans. These birds roost together in groups of thousands of individuals in the late summer and form such big, dense groups that when they all take off in the mornings to leave their martin houses for the day, you can notice them on weather radar maps. At the Camrose Purple Martin Festival, you can get a tour of some well-established Purple Martin habitat, get birding advice from the experts, and there will be opportunities for kids to participate in crafts and other outdoor activities. The festival will take place on June 15th at the Stony Creek Centre in Canmore, Alberta. It starts at 9am and it runs until 3pm. For more information, check out the link to the Facebook page on our website at terrainforma.ca. That was Hannah Cunningham and her friend Elise with headlines. Now to this week's pieces.
Hi, I'm Austin Zeller. Nice. And you like birds, am I correct? Yeah, you're, you, you could say that. I'd say you're more than your average... You know more than I do. You're like a bird boy, almost. <laughs> they might call you. Yeah, half, half bird, half boy. 50%. I'd say maybe a little bit more than 50%. <laughs> yeah, 51. <laughs> Do you have a favorite bird? It's probably really hard to choose. Uh, yeah, it's, it is It is hard to choose. I feel like it, it varies between a few and the last time I've seen a bird. Um, but, like, I, I'd say my favorite bird uh, right now is... Uh, either a marsh wren, um, like really any wrens are really, really nice. Um, what, why do you like wrens? Uh, I think they're, they have a lot of attitude and they, I don't know, just like are kind of really, really angry. Yeah. Can we, can you describe them? Cause in my mind, wrens are like kind of nondescript. They're like, are they typically gray? Like, is that a... On appearance, they are pretty drab. Um, they're very, they're, like, all brown, like, base brown, um, but each, each wren has, like, a subtle difference, um, lots of wrens will have this, uh, nice eye stripe, like, a little eyebrow that's a little bit lighter in color, like, a lighter, a lighter brown, uh, or even sometimes a white, um, they're all kind of a bit speckly, have the little speckles, pretty small, about the size about the size of a chickadee, maybe a little bit bigger. Um, and they have a, a tail that often is pointed upright and uh, kind of a, a medium length beak that curves down. And they, I like that. It, <laughs> an attitude. Yes. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're like really spunky and hmm. yeah, kind of nice. Cool. Kind of always are yelling at you. <laughs> what do they sound like? Do you want to try to mimic? <laughs> but I feel like that's kind of... <laughs> <I like that. laughs> Maybe that's not. <laughs> Where can... So this marsh wren probably found in a marsh. Oh, yeah. What about other wrens? Are they all over the place? I don't know that much about wrens. Yeah, so uh, a lot of wrens do kind of like um, more of a... A wet environment, I'd say. Um, you can find house wrens pretty much anywhere. Uh, house wrens are kind of like your most common stuff, especially here in Alberta, I'd say. It's kind of one of your mo most common wrens. Um, and they are cavity nesters. So that means that they'll, you know, uh, either cavity nesters either excavate their own uh, holes in typically trees um, or other structures. Um, but I, re I, th I believe these house wrens are like secondary uh, cavity nesters, which means they utilize already constructed holes in trees. Yeah. So, what are some other birds have been on your on your list of faves? I really like uh, golden crown kinglets as well. They're like the kinglets are kinglets are like really small birds. I, I would say only slightly larger than a hummingbird. Um, and, yeah, they're just, like, they look really dainty, um, but their songs are pretty pretty nuts a lot of the times, especially the ruby-crowned kinglet. Um, 
but they're also like the golden crown kinglet has this just nice really vibrant golden crown um that is really nice and they're just so cute because they're so small cool what do you mean like are their songs com- like complex uh yeah they like ruby crown kinglet's kind of the one that i always think about um when i think about kinglets and and it yeah it just kind of starts out like as a nice soft like like a lot of times like older birders um because of their hearing loss um often can't hear the beginning of the a ruby can kinglet song because it's so high pitched and then it just kind of gets progressively more and more crazy and kind of goes like sort of thing it's like pretty crazy carter what would you ask austin about birds if you were to ask him about birds i would ask him uh your most exciting story while you were out birding Ooh, my most exciting story i guess this isn't really while i was i was birding uh but i volunteered at a banding station i'd say in uh in vancouver and uh in bird banding station basically what you do is like you you set up these thin nets and uh catch birds that fly by and they're wild um and it was like i'd say it's like my second or third day volunteering at this banding station and a lot of the people that are working there are you know pretty experienced and they've been doing it for a while um so i was i was like pretty new um and I like I, I was kind of getting the hang of it, but I I really didn't know a whole lot what I was doing. So I was like walking walking along, and um, the person that was with me, who was more experienced, uh, said, uh, "Just check the next the next net over. Um, I'll be there in a you know few minutes because I've got to do this other thing." And I was like, "Okay, cool. I'll go do that." And I like walk over, and I see this weird bird in the net thrashing around and just like making all this sound and i'm like i, I like i at the time i like i like i didn't i didn't really recognize the bird like at the time we were mostly catching things like song sparrows and spotted toeys and fox sparrows uh so just like all these different sparrows but this was like a larger bird and i wasn't sure what it was i i like got it was like really gray had uh, kind of a weird black marking on its on its face. I got closer, and I was like, all right, well, I guess I'm going to try to get this bird out of the net. And I reach my hand in, and immediately it just bites me, and I just start gushing blood. And and I, like, look at its beak, and it's, like, it's curved. It's, like, it's, it's like sharp. It's, like, a really sharp beak, and it's designed for killing. Um, and I, I just... I didn't really know what to do, and I just, I was like, I'm, I'm gonna, I have to keep trying to extract this bird from the net, and I'm just, like, gushing blood, and I didn't know what I was doing, I was making it all worse, and then finally the, my, I guess, co-worker comes by, and like, oh, wow, that's a, that's a shrike, like, we have to get this, we have to get this bird out of here, like, you're, like, a mess, your hands are, like, totally gushing blood, and, yeah, it was, it was pretty crazy. Oh my gosh. And that was, like, my first bird I extracted on my own. (laughs) Whoa, that's wild. Yeah. Yeah, shrikes are aggressive. I remember when I was in, yeah, I remember a shrike was, like, definitely on my, like, list of, like, birds I think that are really cool because they're so aggressive and yeah. they just 
kill so much stuff on their sharp beaks, and they're kind of small, though. Yeah, they're actually bigger than you think. All the pictures are so misleading. <laughs> That's actually really funny. But when yeah. they're caught in a net. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I don't know. Because I, I thought they would be, like, really small, too. But it was, like, this a little bit smaller. It was, like, robin-sized. That is definitely bigger than I think. Yeah. So with bird banding and stuff, it's typically bird like the purpose of bird banding, just in case people don't know. My impression is that, or like my understanding is that it's for like biodiversity monitoring or like population monitoring. Yeah, yeah, kind of both. Mm-hmm. I like I think some of the most valuable things that bird banding does, um, it tracks m- migration timings, mm-hmm. and especially in uh, like. I think it's I, I think the tracking of migrations uh, is really important, especially in areas that are one close to uh, urban centers, just because like we don't have a whole lot of more like wildlife science isn't necessarily conducted close to urban centers, and I think like migration t- timing and patterns are one thing that we can uh, predict or monitor better close to urban centers. And two, it's really important in a changing climate to to see how some species are going to react. Um, and we can, like, totally track that change over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that's, those, that's the kind of the data that I find the most valuable out of banding stations. Um, but yeah, also things like just uh, biodiversity and things like that, it's also, also very valuable. So, here we are with Fiona Spitzig. Hey. <laughs> cool. So, we're talking about birds. Um. And as I said to Austin, you're a person who likes birds, right? Is this a question for me? Because the Perfect. answer is yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Good. I figured you're a person who likes birds since you do go outside and are able to tell me what birds are which birds. On occasion, yeah, I can do that. What is your favorite kind of... Well, it maybe it's hard to pick one, but what is some? what are some of your favorite Oh my gosh. Birds? I feel like every time I see a hummingbird, I'm like, they're the best because they have those like shiny gorgets and they're freaking beautiful. But I also think like today I was holding a chicken and I was like, man, this chicken's great. But they're, yeah, they're like polar opposite birds. I think that birds that I know and that I'm familiar with, but don't get to see that often, are probably my favorite. Mm. Do you have any examples of those kinds of birds? Maybe here at Dinosaur? I guess, like, kind of an example that doesn't really go with that is every spring when we hear, like, the first meadowlark. Growing up on the prairies, that was always an indication that spring was finally here. So seeing your first meadowlark is like just a really good feeling it's mm-hmm. nice oh i really like that that's really sweet that was kind of like a nice little like analogy to like where you grew up um which is kind of around the lethbridge area and the prairies do you have any other like i guess like memorable moments that you've had in your life with birds holy moly like, yeah okay <laughs> i think that 
I learned the most about birds when I was working in Creston, BC. Um, we were doing swallow box monitoring and that wasn't like my job. That was kind of a side project we were doing as part of my job, but we were monitoring swallow boxes. So we open them, we take a look at the nest and see how many eggs or how many chicks and what stage they were at. And it was really interesting to see different growth patterns in different nests and just look like I was able to see every stage of baby tree swallow which was so cool and there were some like really high points like I saw a baby swallow actually hatching out of its egg which was remarkable but we also found nest boxes that had been destroyed by weasels and they were just kind of like this tragic scene but I think I learned so much about birds just from doing that about how they grew up and um, their like breeding patterns and their nesting patterns and I think that was like a really like a moment in my life that really pushed me towards being a better birder and liking birds more, which was great. How many years ago was that that you were doing it? I guess, yeah, four summers ago. Cool. Would, would you say like, like for me, I think like a pivotal moment for me when I started being like, whoa, birds are really cool was when I like started to learn more about birds. Um, like when I took a wildlife identification class. Would you say you had a, maybe sort of a similar experience or were you interested in birds kind of like even before those experiences? Um, I guess I've always been sort of interested in them, but definitely a pivotal experience for me was working in Creston. Um, the sort of first week I was doing the job there was a big birding festival and I felt like I had to rapid fire know as many birds as I possibly could so that any birders that came in could be like, hey, where did you last see such and such? And I could sort of point them in that direction. Um, but I feel like I also have this obsession with knowing names of everything I see. So it's sort of built from there and being, that was like a, a major flyway on a migration route. So being able to have that many birds, especially like waterfowl right in that area, it was a really good place to start IDing birds and really just being able to see major differences between different kinds of ducks and grebes and different waterfowl and have like personal experiences with IDing them and looking at them and getting to know them, which was cool. Mm -hmm. That's really awesome. But just to give maybe listeners a bit of context, in Creston, BC, what is the, like, like, what's it kind of like there? What's the, like, biome, I guess, sort oh, of? cool. Yeah, so it's this mountain valley. So it's between two mountain ranges. It's a fairly wide valley, about 10 kilometers across. And on the west side of the valley, there's a man-made wetland. Um, this wetland has existed for quite a few years, uh, several decades and they control the water levels in the wetland so that it is always a good place for waterfowl to breed and to nest. And when I was working there, I was doing canoe tours, so I was out on the water quite regularly. And I also lived right near the wetlands, so I saw like forest birds as well. Cool. Just from my house, yeah. Really awesome. Yeah, you mentioned like grebes and stuff, and I was like, oh, cool. I don't really think I've seen that many grebes in my lifetime, yeah. <laughs> but I'd like to see more. Yeah. You had mentioned um, like you like knowing the names of things, and I think we had talked about this briefly at like some point a while ago, just like knowing the names of things. Yeah, maybe I'll just ask you what you meant by that when you, when you said um, that you like knowing the names of things. Cool, yeah. Um... One time I was told by a friend that knowing the names of the things you're seeing helps you to develop a relationship with them and in understanding what they are and who they are, you can appreciate them more deeply. And I think that that is true for me as well. 
being able to identify a bird, for example, makes me notice it and makes me understand why it's part of that ecosystem and helps me to feel more inclined to do more research and understand it more. And yeah, I guess that's sort of fueling my current desire to know the names of everything I see. Mm -hmm, Definitely. That makes a lot of sense to me, and I really, really agree with that. Um, And I think in Austin's interview, he had talked about, like, house wrens being, like, cheeky or something like (laughs) that. And I thought it was so funny, but so, like, typical of people who appreciate birds to, like, really um, kind of, like, assign or see these, like, personalities in birds. Would you kind of agree with that? Um, yeah, for some reason my mind went to, I had a pet budgie. Her name was Bellatrix, and right from the beginning she had this personality. Um, like, I guess I always felt bad kind of for keeping her in a cage, but it was like, when we got her, the man at the pet store had tried to grab her, and she flew and landed on the floor, and we think that, like, really affected her, but really we have no, (laughs) no reason to actually believe that. But she was just this cheeky little gal, and she had, like, her favorite music that she liked to listen to, but I actually feel like a lot of the time we were just putting our own, like, human traits onto her, and I think that people do that too when they see birds in the wild. Um, like we were talking about how pheasants are so silly because they like to run onto the road, but really they're not running onto the road because they're silly. They're just doing something different that we're probably ignoring because we're trying to implement these human traits onto them. So yeah, it's, it's interesting that people do that for sure. Maybe it's like a way that we understand things a little better. Yeah, definitely. And like back to what you had said as well, like it's a way you develop a relationship with a thing. Yeah. Like understanding is definitely important for us. And Maybe even seeing, like, that thing kind of, like, reflected in yourself. Like, if you were a bird, what kind of bird would you be? Oh my gosh, I would like to think of myself as some sort of falcon. They're so freaking cool. <laughs> oh, I really like that. Would you encourage people who have not really thought about birds to maybe think more about birds? Definitely. Um, yeah, even if you're just, like, a little fledgling birder. I think putting up a bird feeder outside your window or outside a window that you sit by a lot and just getting to know those birds that are there, you'll maybe develop like a deeper understanding of what birds are doing in the ecosystem that you're a part of and understand that they're kind of an indicator species for things to come. They're an important group of little guys and I think they're worth being treasured. So, Well, thanks so much, Fiona. Yeah, thanks, Amanda. Wow, bye. Goodbye. Goodbye, friends. This has been Terra Informa reporting from Dinosaur Provincial Park. The first of many to come. all the time we have for this week's episode. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, located in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the historic territory of Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, Dene, and many other First Peoples who continue to live and gather here and contribute to the stories that we're making 
about the environment in that area. Uh, additionally, me and Amanda are located on Treaty 8 territory in the uh, Dinosaur Provincial Park area, which is traditional territory of the Blackfoot, Sioux, and Métis, who influence the stories that we're going to be making here and our experiences here as interpreters. If you have any questions or comments, send us an email to Tara at cjsr.com or tweet at Terra Informa. To catch up on the latest environmental news, visit our website, terrainforma.ca. Thank you to our volunteer, Hannah Cunningham. And all of the interviewees out here at Dinosaur Provincial Park. We've been your hosts, Amanda Rooney. And Carter Grozitsa. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you'll catch us next week on Terra Informa. Is it good uh, for the audio if I eat some chips during this? <laughs> yes.